0: Father in heaven, this has been a glorious Sabbath day. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of taking one whole day to just unwind, recharge our batteries, remember you in a special way. Father, as we draw this day to a close, we're sad. We would like to prolong this day. but We know that business at hand for this coming week needs to be taken care of. We just ask that as we end this Sabbath day and open your word, that your spirit will be with us to guide our minds and open our hearts. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for hearing us and for answering because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a unique way of studying Bible prophecy. Basically, we use the method which is called historicism. I prefer to call it the historical method. Basically, it's a very disciplined approach to the study of Bible prophecy. Because we have a beginning point and we have an ending point, And everything that is in between the beginning point and the ending point. Now this evening we are going to take a look at a prophecy that probably most if not all of us have studied before. But there's a portion of this prophecy that we don't dwell on a lot when we have evangelistic meetings. And so we're going to look at the entire prophecy very briefly in the first part and we're going to zero in on the portion that... Is not touched upon very uh, in very much detail. Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to go through the sequence in this chapter very quickly. In Daniel chapter 7 we have a lion. What kingdom does the lion represent? Babylon. 605 to 539 B.C. And then we have a bear. The bear represents which kingdom? The Medes and the Persians. They ruled from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. And then you have a third beast, which is a leopard. And the leopard beast represents Greece. Very well. And Greece, of course, rules from 331 B.C. through 168 BC. And then you have what is called a nondescript beast. Actually all of these are kind of nondescript lions with wings, leopards with four heads. They don't exist in real life. But anyway, the fourth beast is actually a dragon beast. It's not called a dragon in Daniel 7, but in Revelation 12 this empire is called the dragon who wants to kill the child when the child is born. So the fourth beast is a dragon beast. And this fourth beast represents which kingdom? It represents the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. But you'll notice that this fourth beast, this dragon beast, has more than one stage of dominion. For a while, this fourth beast rules by itself with no horns on its head. But then after a while, we're told that this beast, this dragon beast, sprouts ten horns on its head after the empire has ruled for a while by itself without horns. And of course we know that the ten horns represent the divisions of the Roman Empire as a result of the barbarian invasions, the uh, barbarians came from the north of the empire and carved up what had been the Roman Empire. And according to historians, the ten kingdoms were complete in the year 476, when the last Roman emperor of the West was deposed. His name was Romulus Augustulus. And then you find that among the ten horns rises a little horn. Actually, in the Aramaic, it says it rises from littleness. In other words, at first this horn is little, but then it becomes huge. And basically what this horn does, as it rises from the head of this dragon beast, once the ten horns are complete, is that the little horn uproots three of the ten horns. And once the three horns are uprooted, the little horn can reign supreme without any opposition. And basically, as we know, as we've studied as Adventists, the little horn, the papacy, using the power of the state, actually uprooted three heretical kingdoms that were Aryan, they believed that Jesus was the first creature of God, Jesus was a created being, and so the papacy appealed to the empire to uproot these three kingdoms. The Heruli in the year 493, the Vandals in the year 534, and the Ostrogoths in the year 538. So in the year 538, the last opposing of the powers was uprooted by the papacy, joining with the power of the emperor of the state. So basically, we have moved in the chain of prophecy without any interruption. We've moved from Babylon to Medo-Persia, to Greece, to the Roman Empire, to the division of the Roman Empire. The uprooting of three kingdoms, three of the ten, takes us to 476 and to 538. And then we find... The little horn rising to supreme power. As we know, it rules for 1,260 years. It speaks blasphemies against the Most High. It persecutes the saints of the Most High. It thinks it can change times and laws, and the Bible says that it rules for time, times, and the dividing of time, which we don't have time to go through, but I know that you've been through this before, represents... 1,260 days, but days in prophecy represent years. So this has taken us to which date? It has taken us all the way as a chain of events without any parentheses, without any interruptions from the Kingdom of Babylon in the year 605 BC all the way down to the year 1798 when the papal power lost its dominion because the state, the power of the state was severed from supporting the papacy. This is historicism. This is the historical method. It's a beautiful method. Because you know at every moment where you are in the flow of history. You know where history starts. And where prophetic history flows, and ultimately these prophecies end with the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom. So you have a starting point and an ending point, and you have everything in between. Now, we don't have time this evening to go beyond 1798 to the beast that has two horns like a lamb. See, that's the next power in the prophetic chain. It rises when the papacy receives its deadly wound. What I want to especially focus on now is the event in Daniel 7 that takes place after the papacy receives its deadly wound in 1798. In Daniel chapter 7, we find four repetitive cycles. In other words, the material of Daniel 7 is basically repeated four times. And let me just review those four times because you can't just read Daniel 7 and say, okay, I want to know where the events start and where they end. And so you begin in verse 1 and Daniel 7 has the sequence of events till the end of time because Daniel 7 runs in cycles, four cycles. So let me just summarize what those cycles are. Verses 1 through 14 of Daniel 7 gives the total vision. It gives the vision... Of the lion, the bear, the leopard, the dragon beast, the ten horns, the little horn, and then a judgment takes place, and then Jesus receives the kingdom. It takes you first full circle, verses 1 through 14, the entire sweep of the vision. That's verses 1 through 14. In verses 15 through 18, we find Daniel asking the angel, which I believe was Gabriel, He says, I want to know what this vision means. I want to understand the interpretation of this vision. And so, the angel gives him a very brief explanation of the vision that Daniel has just seen. Basically, he says, the four beasts are four kings that will arise in the earth, and after this, the saints will receive the kingdom. That's basically the explanation. But of course, Daniel wasn't quite satisfied with that broad sweep. And so in verses 19 through 22, Daniel speaks to the angel and he says, Listen, I want to know especially about the fourth beast and the little horn and the arrival of the ancient of days and the taking over of the kingdom. That's verses 19 to 22. So once again, you have the idea, I want to know what this prophecy means, especially the portions that have to do with the fourth beast, the little horn, the coming of the Ancient of Days for the Judgment, and the taking over of the kingdom. So, in verses 25 to 27, we find the angel explaining to Daniel what the meaning of the fourth beast is, the meaning of the ten horns, the meaning of the little horn, the meaning of the arrival of the Ancient of Days, and the setting up of the Everlasting Kingdom. So Daniel 7 runs in four cycles. In each of the cycles, you find the beginning with the first beast and the ending with the setting up of the Everlasting Kingdom. So what we want to do is we want to take a look at the event that takes place after the papacy receives its deadly wound in 1798. Now, before we do this, I need to mention that the Adventist view of the judgment is unique, it is distinctive. There is no church in the world that shares the Adventist view of the judgment. You see, for almost all Christians, the judgment is when you die. Because if you die and you were a good person linked to Jesus, you are whisked off to heaven. If you were bad, you are sent to hell. And if you were half bad, you're sent to purgatory. So in other words, the judgment in Protestant theology, Roman Catholic theology, takes place at death. So the idea that a judgment begins in 1844 to start judging human beings beginning with Adam and ending with the living is absolutely absurd because the Christian world believes that people receive their reward when they die. Are you with me? The Adventist church does not have that view. The Adventist church believes that the judgment is not an event. The judgment is a process. And Daniel 7 makes that very clear. Now, In earthly judgments, the judgments take place in three stages, three steps. First of all, in earthly judgments, you have an examination of the evidence. Is that correct? You have an investigation of the case. The district attorney presents the case against. And the defense attorney presents the case in favor. All of the evidence is brought before the court. After the examination of the evidence, then either the judge, if the judge is doing the judging, or the jury pronounces the verdict or the sentence. And then the time comes when the sentence is executed. Is that the way our system of jurisprudence works? Absolutely an investigation of the case, a verdict based on the examination of the evidence, and then the implementation of the verdict, where the individual actually is rewarded according to the verdict that was given, and the verdict was given according to the investigation of the information in the specific case. Now let's go in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, And we'll examine first of all verses 8 through 10 and then we'll go to verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, 8 through 10. Remember this is taking place after 1798. This judgment scene is after the papacy rules for 1260 years. So obviously the judgment did not take place when Jesus died on the cross. The judgment did not take place in Martin Luther's day. The judgment does not take place, we're going to notice, even at the second coming, that's the execution of the judgment. It takes place shortly after the papacy receives its deadly wound in the chain of events of Daniel chapter 7. So let's go to verses 8 through 10, and then we'll take a look at verses 13 and 14. It says there in verse 8, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. Was he seated there before? Of course not. If he was seated, he must have come from some other place to be seated. Are you with me or not? So it says the Ancient of Days was seated. Now the question is, where is the Ancient of Days? And who is he? The Ancient of Days is? God the Father. And where does God the Father live? We are taught to pray, Our Father which art everywhere. No. Our Father which art where? Our Father which art in heaven. The Ancient of Days is in heaven, so this is taking place where? In heaven. So it says the Ancient of Days was seated. And then it describes him. His garment was white as snow, And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Who are these? The angels. Where do they live? In heaven. They're surrounding God's throne in heaven. And now notice why the Father is seated and the angels are surrounding the throne. It says, the court was seated and the books were opened. Where is this event transpiring? In heaven. This is the investigative stage. The books were opened. The books, in other words, are going to be examined And they are going to be examined in a heavenly judgment where the Ancient of Days lives. And so, the father moves and he's seated. By the way, where was the father before he moved? He must have been in the holy place. I mean, you don't have to have the wisdom of Solomon. You don't have to be Albert Einstein to figure out that if the father goes into the most holy place for the judgment... It must be that he was where before? He must have been in the holy place of the sanctuary before. So the father moves, he sits, the books are open, the investigation is going to begin, the first stage of the judgment. And then in verse 13, we find that someone else moves. Let's read beginning with verse 13. Here Daniel explains, I was watching in the visions of the night. And behold, one like the Son of Man. Who is that? Jesus. He referred to himself as the Son of Man multiple times in the Gospels. And so it says, And behold, one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. To where? To the earth? Is this the second coming when when the Bible says, Lo, he comes with the clouds and every eye shall see him? No. Because the passage continues saying, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Where was the Ancient of Days? In heaven. What apartment? Most holy place. So where does the Son of Man move with the clouds? Not to the earth as the Millerites were mistaken about. But the Son of Man moved to where the Ancient of Days had moved in heaven. And then it says, And they brought Him. Who is they? They brought Him. They brought the Son of Man. Who brought Him? The clouds, the angels. Yes, it says, They brought Him near before Him. Who is the Him? The Father. father. Very well. Now, why does Jesus go there? What is the purpose of Jesus going into the presence of the Father in 1844? The answer is found in verse 14. Then, to him... Who would that be? To whom? To Jesus was given... Who gave it to him? The Father. So notice why Jesus goes there. Then to him was given... Dominion and glory and a kingdom. So why does Jesus go before the Father? To receive what? To receive the kingdom from his Father. His Father is going to give him the kingdom. That's why Jesus goes in there. And in a moment we're going to define what the kingdom is. So it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So the father moves, the father sits. The books are open for the examination, for the investigation. Then the son moves to where the father is, and the purpose of the son moving is so that the Father can give Jesus the kingdom. And in a few moments, we're going to define what the kingdom is. That's the first cycle that we just looked at. Now let's take a look at the second cycle, where Daniel wants to know a little bit more about the vision, and he's given a brief explanation. Notice verse 16. It says, I came near one of those who stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And now comes the brief explanation. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever. And ever. so, notice it covers the broad sweep of the vision again. Four beasts or four kings or four kingdoms, and after this, it says that the saints will receive the kingdom and they will actually possess the kingdom. Then we have the third cycle Daniel 7 21 and 22. I was watching. And the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came. Came to where? To the earth? No, this is reviewing what we saw in the vision. Until the Ancient of Days came to where? To the most holy place in heaven. And then notice what it says. And a judgment, that's the investigation by the way, and a judgment was made... What? In favor of the saints of the Most High. Where is that verdict given in favor of the saints of the Most High? That verdict is given in heaven. You say, how do we know that? Let's read carefully again. It says in verse 22, Until the Ancient of Days came, which we already noticed is in heaven, And a judgment was made in favor of the saints. Does there have to be an investigation in order to give a verdict in favor of the saints? Absolutely. And then it says, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Is that when the sentence is executed? Is that when the reward is given based on the verdict, based on the investigation? Absolutely. So you find these three stages. Now, notice Daniel 7, 25 to 27. This is the last cycle. This is the fourth cycle. Speaking about the little horn, it says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, but the courts shall be seated. Where? Where? Are you seeing that this is running in cycles? The vision is the basic portion. That's where it tells you that the judgment takes place in heaven. So it says, the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. That is the little horn's dominion. Where where is the dominion taken away? It's taken away by verdict where? In heaven. To consume and destroy it forever. Forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So we have three stages to the judgment clearly revealed in Daniel chapter 7. We have, first of all, the investigation of the case. Then we have the verdict pronounced. Both of these stages take place where? In heaven. And then you have the time when the saints actually possess the kingdom. Jesus possesses the kingdom. That is the moment when the reward is given or when the sentence is actually actually executed. But of course the question is, what is the kingdom that is given to Jesus? He goes to the Father to receive the kingdom. What is the kingdom? You know, usually we think of the kingdom in geographical terms. Like, for example, the United Kingdom. Is there anyone here who's from the United Kingdom? Ah, we have a few people from the United Kingdom. When I say the United Kingdom, usually you're thinking about the territory, right? Thinking about Wales and Scotland and Ireland and England. You know, that's the United Kingdom. But in the Bible, the kingdom is not so much the geographical realm. The kingdom is composed of the subjects that belong to the kingdom. The kingdom is the people that are members of the kingdom. That is the kingdom. Let me read you a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. It's found in early writings, page 280. Ellen White here is speaking about the moment when probation closes. All cases are decided. This is how it reads. Every case has been decided for life or death. While Jesus had been ministering in the sanctuary, the judgment had been going on for the righteous dead and then for the righteous living. Where does the judgment take place for the dead and for the living? In heaven, according to this. Now notice, Christ had received his kingdom, having made the atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. That is when probation closes, Jesus receives what? Jesus receives the kingdom. Now what does that mean? Ellen White continues explaining, she says, The subjects of his kingdom was made up. What is his kingdom? His kingdom are the subjects of his kingdom. The subjects of the kingdom were made up. The marriage of the lamb was consummated. Where does the marriage of the lamb take place? In heaven. Where are God's people when the marriage takes place? On earth. In other words, the marriage is done in absentia. So it says the marriage of the Lamb was consummated and the kingdom and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven was given to Jesus and the heirs of salvation. And Jesus was to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom is composed of the people that belong to the kingdom. It's the subjects of the kingdom. Now what is the purpose of the judgment? The investigation. The purpose of the investigation is to determine what? Who is the subject of the kingdom. Are you with me or not? You say, why would a judgment have to be made to determine who's the subject of the kingdom? It's very simple, folks. Because not everyone who professes to be a member of the kingdom is a true member of the kingdom. That's why there needs to be a judgment. Let me ask you this. Does the church have wheat and tares? Do the tares claim to be genuine Christians? Yes. So must a separation, a work of separation be done? When is the work of separation done? The Bible says at the end of the age. That's the judgment. Separation of the wheat and the tares is the judgment. Let me ask you, in the church... Are there good and bad fish? Yes, there are. When you throw out the gospel net, the gospel net gathers only real good fish. No. I know from personal experience when I was a kid, my parents would go on vacation to an island in Venezuela called Margarita. One of the, the persons that is here went to college with me. Her name is Margarita just like the island. And we used to go to this, to this beach at about 4 o'clock in the morning watch the fishermen come in. They would bring in their nets and in the nets there was every kind of marine animal that you could imagine. And they would bring them all to the shore and they would have baskets and they would put the good in one basket and they would put the, what was going to be discarded in the other basket. Let me ask you, in the church are there wise and foolish virgins? Do the foolish ones claim to be members of the kingdom? Oh, sure they do. Of course they do. Let me ask you, in the church are those who have the wedding garment and those who don't? Yes. In the church are there those who cast out demons and perform miracles and give prophecies in the name of Jesus where Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Yes, they claim to be Christians because they did it in the name of Jesus. Are there in the church wolves that are clothed like sheep? Yes. Are there ministers who disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness? Absolutely. Are there those who have the form of godliness but don't have the power of godliness in the church? Yes. So let me ask you, does a work of separation have to take place to determine who is a true subject of the kingdom? Absolutely. And that's the investigative stage of the judgment. And by the way, the only ones that are examined in this pre-advent investigative judgment are those who at some point claimed Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The rest will be examined during the millennium and after the millennium. But there's an urgency for Jesus to determine who is the subject of his kingdom before the second coming, because when he comes the second time, he's going to take them with him. So he has to reveal who he has a right to take. And that's done in the investigative judgment. Every person who has ever claimed the name of Jesus is investigated in the investigative judgment. And now let me ask you this question. Can forgiveness, once it is given, be revoked by God? Yes. say, really? It's not once forgiven, forever forgiven? No. You remember the story of the two debtors? There was this individual that owed 10,000 talents. A debt that could never be paid. He had probably embezzled this money from his Lord. And so the Lord calls him to accounts. And he says, render an account of how good of a steward you were. And it was discovered that he had embezzled all this money. And so his Lord says, pay me everything. This individual couldn't do it. It was too large a sum. So he cries out and he says, please give me time and I'll pay you. His Lord said, come on, be real. If I gave you several lifetimes, you would never be able to pay. And so he cried out, see, because he was going to be thrown into prison, all of his goods were going to be confiscated. And so he cries out again for compassion. And his Lord says, I'll tell you what. Because you cried out to me for mercy, your debt is forgiven. And he says, really? I don't have to do anything? No. Your debt is forgiven. You can go. Wow! He says, this is fantastic. I got off the hook. And so now he goes out the door and he finds someone that owed him 100 denarii, which was a considerable sum, the equivalent of 100 days of work, because the the daily wage was one denarii, one denarius. And he finds this individual, he says, pay me what you owe me. And this individual does the same thing. He cries out, he says, please give me time, I'll pay you. He says, no way. And the Bible says he actually took him by the neck and he was choking him. Hmm. Well, it just so happens that his master and his Lord, actually the servants of the master or Lord, which represents the angels, the recording angels, by the way, they came and they told, they told the master, Do you know what that guy did that you forgave such a huge debt? He went out and he found somebody that owed him a pittance and he was choking him to death. And the master says, Oh, really? Bring that man here. The judgment. The judgment. Bring this man here. So the man comes and his Lord says, Didn't I forgive a huge debt? that you could never pay because you cried out for mercy? And probably with a smile on his face, he said, Oh, yes, thank you so much. And now his Lord says, If I forgave you such a huge debt, should you not have shown your appreciation of that by forgiving a lesser debt of your fellow human being? The Bible says that he revoked the forgiveness. He withdrew his forgiveness until he paid everything that he owed. Do you know what kind of tears that guy had? Those were crocodile tears. He was not really sorry that he had embezzled the money from his master, from his Lord. He was sorry he was going to get punished. He was sorry he was going to prison and all of his goods were going to be confiscated. And... The fact that he was not truly repentant was shown by his works. That's why we are saved by grace through faith, but our works show if our faith is genuine or not. And this man's works showed that he was not truly repentant. He was afraid of the punishment. And he was not sorry that he embezzled this money from his Lord. So there has to be a work of what? What? of separation. Is it just possible that many individuals who have placed their sins in the sanctuary but have not truly repented of sin, when their cases are examined in the judgment they will be found wanting? That's what this story is teaching us. You know what really is examined in the judgment is the genuineness of repentance. That's the purpose of the judgment. To see whether repentance was genuine or not. If repentance was genuine, the life will show it. If repentance is not genuine, the life will also show it. That's why we are saved by grace through faith, but the judgment will be done according to our works because our works show if our faith was genuine or not. And based on the examination. On the genuineness of our repentance. And our sorrow for sin. God. Will. Decide. Our case. In the heavenly court. Are you following me? Now there are two items that I want to deal with. Before we bring this to a close this evening. I watched I like to watch faces when I'm preaching. Because I can tell if, if what I'm saying is registering or if people are struggling. You know, for example, some people go, oh, it's okay, it's getting through. But then some people, they'll, they'll kind of do this. Eh, that's not real clear. I don't get it. I saw some people Some people's faces, kind of like that when I said that the wedding takes place in heaven while God's people are on earth. In other words, the wedding takes place in heaven. Jesus marries his kingdom in heaven. By the way, marrying his bride and marrying his kingdom is the same thing. Receiving the kingdom and marrying his kingdom are two ways of saying the same thing. Now let's go to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, 35 to 37. Here we find very clearly that the wedding takes place in heaven. The investigation is made. When God's kingdom or God's bride is complete because the judgment has shown who's a member of the bride of Christ, who's a member of the kingdom of Christ, then at that point, Jesus marries his kingdom. The kingdom or the bride is the totality of his people. While the individuals are the guests to the wedding. Are you with me or not? The totality, once the totality of Christ's people have been determined and revealed in the judgment, his kingdom is complete. His bride, so to speak, is complete. And at that point, Jesus, of course, can marry his kingdom or he can marry his bride because it's been revealed who is a subject of his kingdom, who is a member of his bride. However, each individual within the kingdom is a guest to the wedding. But we are guests not because we are there physically. We are guests there because our names are registered in heaven. Now let's go to Luke chapter 12, 35 to 37. Here it comes through clearly. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. What is it that the lamp has that makes it it burn? Oil. And the lamp sheds light, right? So in other words, we must have an abundance of the Spirit that makes us shine before others. And now notice, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will... Return from the wedding. Did you catch that? He's saying to his disciples, you need to be like individuals who wait for the master to return from the wedding. So are the disciples there for the wedding? No. Because Jesus is saying, wait until I what? Return from the wedding. The wedding takes place in a different place than where the disciples are. So it continues saying, And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, this is the second coming, by the way, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. That is the wedding reception. You see, there is the wedding and then there's the reception. The wedding takes place in heaven when Jesus marries his kingdom or his bride, once it's been shown by the investigation, who is a member of his kingdom or of his bride. But then Jesus will come to where his disciples are who are waiting for him and then he will take them to heaven where we will sit at the table for the wedding reception. Ellen White describes that reception. In early writings, page 19 and 20, Ellen White explains, I saw a table of pure silver. It was many miles in length, yet our eyes could extend over it. I saw the fruit of the tree of life, the manna, almonds, figs, pomegranates, grapes, and many other kinds of fruit. She's speaking about the products from the Napa Valley. (laughs) That's where she retired. I'm sure that, you know, she says other kinds of fruit. There probably were mangoes there. And other kinds of fruit that maybe she didn't even know existed. Then she says, I asked Jesus to let me eat of the fruit. He said, not now. Those who eat of the fruit of this land go back to earth no more. But in a little little while, if faithful, you shall both eat of the fruit of tree of life And drink of the water of the fountain. And he said, you must go back to the earth again. And relate to others what I have revealed to you. Then an angel bore me gently down to this dark world. Sometimes I think I can stay here no longer. All things of earth look so dreary. I feel very lonely here. For I have seen a better land. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Then would I fly away and be at rest. Should that be our desire? To not live in this dark, dreary world? People say, yeah, pastor, but I have, I have a good house. Let me ask you, is it made of gold? <laughs> oh, I have the latest model of a Mercedes. The question, does it fly? Nothing in this world compares to what we're going to have up there. So let's not get all focused and attached to the stuff here. Let's invest in God's kingdom It produces eternal dividends. One other passage that I would want us to take a look at. Matthew twenty-two eleven to 14. Matthew twenty-two eleven to 14. This clearly shows that the wedding takes place in heaven. While All of those who profess Jesus are on earth. Some will be chosen and some will be rejected. This is the story of the great banquet. You remember that messengers were sent out inviting people to the wedding, inviting the Jews to the wedding. They rejected the first invitation. Then after the death of the bulls, which represents the death of Christ, More messengers are sent out to the Jews and they reject the message again. So, the messengers are told, go to the highways and byways, that's to the Gentiles, and invite everyone to come to the wedding. The wedding hasn't taken place yet. Invite everyone to come to the wedding. And finally, when everybody had accepted the invitation to the wedding, the wedding chamber is full. And now I want you to notice what happens in verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests. There's going to be an examination of the guests. By the way, there are several words in Greek for see. There's the word uh, blepo, horao, and other words for see. But this is a special word. It's the word theaomai. Basically, it means an intensive, thorough, lingering, reflective, comprehending observation. It is an examination. The king comes out to examine the guests. We continue reading. It says, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. This guy must have sneaked into heaven. So when is this taking place? Is this, you know, uh, Jesus comes, he takes his people to heaven, see? And then when God's people are in heaven, the king comes out and he says, now let's see who has a right to be here. No! Nobody's going to sneak into heaven. This is a pre-advent judgment. To examine the garment to see if the individual truly repented of sin and the life revealed it. And so it says, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Let's ask, let me ask you, how are we there? We are there because we're written in the books, in the book of life. The names of all those who profess Jesus are written in the book. We are there in written form while we are personally where? On earth. And in the judgment, God goes in chronological order. I'm glad he doesn't deal with alphabetical order because my last name starts with B. But in chronological order, he examines every single person who has ever professed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And based on whether they have the wedding garment or don't don't have the wedding garment, their case is decided for life or for death. So it says, so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? How is it that you're written in the book of life if you don't have on the wedding garment? And he was speechless. And now here comes the sentence. See, we already saw the investigation, right? He goes out to investigate to see who has the garment. Now he says to the servants, this is the verdict, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. That would be the execution of the sentence, right? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now among theologians, there's this debate as to whether the focus of Daniel 7 is a judgment against the little horn or in favor of the saints. In fact, it's a debate that shouldn't even exist. Because this investigative judgment has a double purpose. You see, what happened on earth was that during the 1260 years, and by the way, this does not refer only to the 1260 years. Some people say, oh, this judgment only deals with the little horn, the period of the little horn. Well, yes, that's the focus of Daniel 7. It doesn't mean that there's not a broader application. It's just this segment that Daniel 7 is dealing with. It's dealing with the period of the persecution of God's God's people during the period of the little horn. It's like the Sabbath. Remember this morning I said, God said the Sabbath is a sign between me and the Jews? There's a broader explanation in Scripture. It's for all humanity. And so this judgment in Daniel 7 deals with the period of the little horn, but other texts from Scripture show that it's much broader. It includes all of those who have ever professed Jesus. Are you following me or not? So what is this here? What happens is the little horn professes to be a Christian power, doesn't it? Does the little horn profess to be a Christian power? It does. So is the little horn also going to come up for evaluation? Absolutely. Now what did the little horn do in earthly courts during the 1260 years? Did they do an inquisition? Yes. Do you know what inquisition means? It means to inquire. They did an examination. Was it a fair examination? No. No. It was like the examination they did of Jesus. Totally biased and one-sided. They already had condemned Jesus before they did the investigation. Let me ask you, did they pronounce a verdict against the saints of the Most High? In earthly courts? Yes. Did they execute the sentence? Yes. Was that a travesty injustice? It was a total travesty. It was a sham. Earthly courts examined the evidence against the, against the martyrs. They were found guilty when they were not guilty. The sentence was pronounced against them and they were executed. The purpose of the heavenly judgment is to reverse the wrong decisions of the earthly court. Let's take, for example, John Huss who was burned at the stake. You know, I've been there in Constance in southern, southern Germany where he was burned at the stake. You know, they took him to the cathedral and they did an inquiry. They did an investigation. It was a sham. They found him guilty. They pronounced the sentence of the verdict of death. And then they took him and they, they put him at a stake. They put chains around him, wood around him, and they burned him alive. Was there any justice in that? Absolutely not. So what happens when the name of John Huss comes up in the judgment? The heavenly jury will look at the evidence, they say, now wait a minute. The earthly court got it wrong. The evidence reveals that John Huss was a faithful follower of Jesus. And so this court is going to reverse his death sentence. And the time comes when Hush will be resurrected from the dead. And he will be in Christ's kingdom throughout eternity. So to say, oh, this is only a judgment against the little horn. No, it's a judgment against the little horn and in favor of the saints who were persecuted during the 1260 years. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't include saints from other times of human history. There's a broader perspective in Leviticus 16 and other passages that deal with the investigative judgment. Let me give you one final example. Go with me to Revelation 20 verse 4. We need to do this quickly because we're running out of time. Revelation 20 verse 4. This is speaking about the martyrs that will suffer death during the little time of trouble. Ever heard of the little time of trouble? Right at the end, the Sunday law, when Sunday's being enforced, a death decree will be given. This is before probation closes. And they're going to be slain. But notice what they're going to do during the thousand years. It says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. In other words, they're going to perform a work of judgment. To whom? Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Let me ask you, is that the last time generation? Was Martin Luther tested, was John Huss tested over the the beast and his mark and the image of the beast? Those things didn't exist. So this is talking about the end time generation. And what are they going to do? It says that they are going to perform a work of what? A work of judgment. Are they the only ones that are going to perform a work of judgment? You read Revelation 20 verse 4, that's the impression you get. Yeah, it says those who die during the final little time of trouble, they are going to be the ones that are going to judge. But the Bible has a broader explanation. See, historical critical scholars love to make you stay just in one passage. They'll say, you can't take other passages from Scripture to explain this one. Well, the Holy Spirit superintended the composition of Scripture. And he placed in all of Scripture everything we need to understand Scripture. That's the Seventh-day Adventist perspective. And I hope you, uh, you'll attend the, the seminar by, by Clint Wallin on hermeneutics. That's the big battle in the Adventist church now. Not women's ordination. It's about how you interpret the Bible. That's the deeper issue. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3? This gives us a broader explanation. The Apostle Paul says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Who are the saints there? It says, and if the world will be judged by you, the Corinthians, so are the Corinthians going to also participate in that judgment? During the thousand years? Yes. It says, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we, including Paul, shall judge angels? So is it only those who lived during the last period of tribulation, the ones that are going to judge? No. All of God's people are going to judge when you look at the broader perspective. Were you able to follow what we studied tonight? Unique to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ellen White said, we are now in the great judgment. Soon, no one knows how soon, he will pass to the cases of the living. And in other places, Ellen White gives the strong impression that the judgment of the living is related to the Sunday law. When everyone who is alive will have to decide whether to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast. And the decisions that we are making now, folks, whether we're walking closely with Jesus now, will determine the decision that we will make then. Because he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And he that is faithful unfaithful in little will be unfaithful in much. May God bless us and help us to be faithful let us pray Father in heaven we thank you for the view of the judgment that you have given to us we know that we don't have to fear the judgment if we are in Jesus because he is our advocate he is our intercessor and our mediator I ask Lord that you will bless each person gathered here this evening I ask Lord that you will help us walk closely with Jesus taken by his hand as we walk towards the kingdom of heaven Thank you, Lord, for having been with us and for answering our prayer. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.